Uh, Let us join our hearts together in prayer. Father God, you've called us here uh, this day from a busy week, and you've called us from a lot of circumstances. Uh, Some of them have been good, and some of them have been hard. Uh, You've set aside this time for us to take a pause and to take a break, to take a Sabbath from our work, and we pray that you uh, give us the ability to rest uh, at least for this hour, to lay aside the concerns of the weeks and the responsibilities that will show up again on Monday morning. We pray that we can just rest here with you right now and be refocused and strengthened and rejuvenated. Lord, we know that when we run without resting that we become not very good at what you've called us to do. And so I pray that you give us the grace this day of a Sabbath rest. Lord, we thank you for your word and uh, we thank you for the freedom to read and to study this word in public. Lord, we uh, ask that your Holy Spirit would be present in the reading and the proclamation of your word this morning. Uh, We ask that you would uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the spiritual truths. Lord, I pray as well that you would give us uh, insight uh, to apply your word to our lives, that you would give us the courage to allow your word to convict us where we live in our several places. Father God, we pray for those who are estranged from you this day, for those who do not know you as Lord and Savior, for those who have wandered away from you. through the cares of life. We pray that you would be merciful to them and that you would continue to draw them back to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would find the lost sheep uh, and return them to the fold. Lord, for those of our fold who are not able to be present with us in the flesh this morning, we pray that your presence would be with them in a palpable way. We pray that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be real. We pray that we would be bound one to another in this congregation as brothers and sisters uh, in a family that is more than family. Father God, you have grafted us into the body of Christ. You've given each follower of Christ a unique place within the body, a unique function to perform. And we perform those functions not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of our brothers and sisters. And so we just ask that you would encourage us to be about the work that you've called us to. We pray that you would supernaturally enable us to do what it is that you've called us to. And I pray that we would find joy and um, refreshment in doing what it is that we were made to do. Lord, you have given us work as creatures made in your image. And that work is not an oppression, but that work is our liberation. And so we pray this day that we would enjoy our godly work, the work of the kingdom. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified by our lives and by our service, by our actions and by our attitudes. Father God, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So I'm going to read uh, from Mark chapter 11. We're taking a break from uh, our sermon series through uh, the Acts of the Apostles to uh, look at the texts that are connected with Palm Sunday and with Easter Sunday uh, next week. By the way, we have a service here on Thursday. We have an, an evening service, a Monday Thursday service. That'll be... Uh, a very beautiful service. We will share communion together. It's subdued. We have readings from scriptures, a lot of music, not a lot of preaching. Um, and so I would encourage you to come out for that 7 o'clock service uh, here um, at the church, 7 p.m. All right, hear the word of God from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. So this, of course, is a very familiar passage uh, to all of you. It's a it's it's a a story that we we look out uh, we look at every year. It's one of the stories about Jesus that appears in all four gospels. I don't know if you realize that. You know, the gospel writers chose different stories to tell. They don't all tell the same stories. Um, and so when there is a particular story that shows up in all four of the gospels, it really should capture our attention. And Palm Sunday story is one of those stories. Palm Sunday, of course, is the beginning of what we call Holy Week. So uh, beginning with this day, There's a series of events that unfold that culminate in the execution of Jesus and then his subsequent resurrection one week later. I've always found uh, Palm Sunday uh, problematic. I've always kind of wished someone else had to preach on this Sunday uh, rather than me because this is the Sunday where we remember what we call the triumphal entry 
And yet we know in the back of our minds that within one week, the Hosannas are going to turn into crucify him. If we are the people who are waving the palms today, are we going to be the ones who are betraying him later in the week? It's called the triumphal entry, but where's the triumph? Now there are four elements to this Palm Sunday story. I want to review those elements. They're all familiar to you. But then I want to spend some time at the end of this sermon asking the question, what does this teach us? The four elements are these, the donkey. All four accounts talk about a donkey. Can't have Palm Sunday without a donkey. Matthew actually has two donkeys. He's got both a a mother and and a baby donkey. There are the palms. We call it Palm Sunday for a reason. Do you all have palms? Lift up your palms, please. Let me see your palms. Some of you don't have palms. Okay, this is an outrage. Okay, we know where you stand. Okay. Lift your palms up. Okay, so... By the way, it's only the Gospel of John that calls them palms. The other Gospel writers just call them branches. But uh, John specifies that they were palm branches. There are crowds on Palm Sunday. You can't have Palm Sunday without a crowd. It's all about crowds of people shouting in the streets of Jerusalem. In one of the Gospels, the crowd is just the disciples. In others of the Gospels, it looks like it was more than just the disciples, but there are crowds of people. And then there is this word, Hosanna. All right, that's that's the Palm Sunday word. If you write a Palm Sunday hymn, you've got to include the word Hosanna. It's required, okay? Hosanna, that's the Palm Sunday word. So we're going to look at those four elements and then we're going to ask the question, what does this teach us? Because while it is true that the Palm Sunday account is an historical account, and in a sense, the, the gospel writers are simply telling you the facts of history. It's important to recognize that there's a lot more history that happened that ever, than gets recorded. Okay, the recorder of the history is selecting among all of the millions of things that happened in the life of Jesus and saying, hey, these are the important ones, take a, take a notice of this. So, what does this story teach us? I hope you all have in your mind uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. And so anytime we're reading a passage of scripture, we should be asking ourselves, okay, what in this is for my reproof? What in this is for the correction of the church? In what way is this training in righteousness? That's what we're going to be thinking about more than just history. So let's talk about the history for a little minute. Let's start with a donkey. So I was at dinner last night with my son who lives in South Philadelphia. I'm not sure how this came up, but my wife observed that the donkey is my spirit animal. Okay, some of you, you know, your spirit animal is an eagle or a, 
you know, a lion. My, my, my spirit animal is the donkey. I've always admired donkeys. I like them. I think they're very nice animals. In fact, when I was in graduate school, I used to go visit my mother every weekend. I would take the bus to go visit her. She lived down by Atlantic City. And I built a boat, a sailboat in her garage. And, um, I named the boat after the donkey of Don Quixote's sidekick, Sancho Panza. The donkey whose name was, was Dapple. So, I mean, maybe donkeys are my spirit animal. I like donkeys. The donkey shows up in the show. I don't know if you've ever been in a country where they use donkeys as transportation. If you travel in North Africa or in the Middle East, you'll see lots of donkeys, people riding on donkeys, people carrying things on donkeys. The donkey's important in the story. Jesus sets up the donkey scene. All right, notice this. I mean, Jesus plans this whole thing out. It's a borrowed donkey. You might want to ask the question, why is this a borrowed donkey? And the answer is pretty obvious that Jesus doesn't have a ride of his own. King of kings, Lord of lords, most important rabbi in all of Palestine. And he doesn't have a ride. All right, that's how poor he was. That's by choice. He made a lifestyle choice. He wasn't going to be distracted by having to take care of the animal. But on this occasion, he needs to borrow a donkey. The other thing which is important about this donkey and the setup of the donkey scene is that Jesus sees this donkey and he foresees the reaction of the owners of the donkey supernaturally. Okay, we see a little display of Jesus' God brain. Okay, Jesus is fully human for sure. But he's also God, and this is a case where the bit of the godness pops out, right? He knows that there's this donkey in this village. He can't see it. The human eye can't see the distance, but he knows that it's there. And he tells his men, two of his men, to go get the donkey. And he also then scripts for them what they're supposed to say. I mean, they're grown men, but Jesus has to tell them, okay, now they're going to say this, and then you're going to say this. And that's exactly what happens. So that's important there. But the meaning of the donkey becomes clear only in subsequent time. If you have your Bibles handy there, I would encourage you to flip over to Matthew chapter 21. We do have black pew Bibles, those of you who are not Baptist. Um, Matthew chapter 21 uh, and verses 4 and 5. Here the gospel writer gives us the interpretation of what the donkey stuff meant. And he writes this. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place... To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew is quoting Zechariah 9.9, which we read uh, as our first reading this morning. The gospel writer, years after these events have transpired, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, realizes that what was going on there, in fact, was a fulfillment of a prophecy. 
Jesus set this up to fulfill a prophecy. Jesus, of course, knows the Old Testament scriptures. And he sets this thing up to fulfill as a sign this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. Now the symbolism here in Zechariah is that the king of Jerusalem is coming on a humble animal rather than on a powerful animal. Normally the king is going to come in a chariot pulled by horses or on the back of a horse. Okay, the horse was a, a war animal. It was the tank of its day. Ah, but this king is not going to come with the instruments of war. The other animal that would have been available to rich people was the camel. That was the animal of the merchants. Ah, This king is not going to come as a merchant king either. He's neither a warrior king nor a merchant king. He's a humble king. And he's coming to Jerusalem. And Jesus is signaling, I am that king. The donkey is important to the story. The donkey is important for us understanding the identity of Jesus. One of the problems with the story of Palm Sunday is that it's a disaster It's a disaster story because the people misunderstand the identity of the Savior that's come to them. They end up killing him rather than embracing him. They're looking for a different kind of king than he was. We'll talk about that in a minute, but the symbolism here is the donkey. This is the signal that those who had been attuned to the scriptures of God should have seen that Jesus was placing himself in the position of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Okay, that's the donkey. Let's talk about the palms. Grandma Joan got us the palms this morning. Thank you very much. I love seeing them every year. Some of you then take them with you and you make little crosses out of them. Um, Those of you who are very high church, you save them until the next year and you burn them and you use the ashes for Ash Wednesday. But we don't do that. But you can. You're free to do that. Let's talk about the palms. So the story tells us that Jesus is uh, on the donkey. Well, the first thing that happens is, is that the disciples put their cloaks on the back of the donkey. All right, so... And then they put their cloaks on the ground in front of the donkey, and the donkey walks on the cloaks... And then some people grab branches like these, they cut them down from the surrounding fields and they throw them on the ground. It's kind of a red carpet that's happening here. It's a sign of respect. You know, you you roll out the red carpet. The idea with the red carpet is, is that, oh, that this VIP is so uh, uh, so elevated and so distinguished that he dare not let his feet touch the dirt. Okay, and so in this case, Jesus is shielded from the dirt of the beast of burden. He's sitting on a cloak on top of the beast of burden. And the beast of burden, his hooves are not even touching the ground. He's riding across cloaks and branches. That's a piece of the imagery here. But another, I think, more important indication here, uh, we see in Revelation chapter 7, if you want to flip over there, I want to read just a couple of lines there. In Revelation chapter 7, 
uh, in verses 9 and 10, we see palms showing up again. Let me read for you. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are victor palms. Those saints who the Apostle John saw in a vision in heaven had earned the victory and a sign of their victory is the palm. I mean, there are two plants that are often associated with victory. The laurel, which you would wrap around your your brow, and then the palm, which you would carry in your hand. There are still, I think there's a, a film prize called the palm door, the, the palm of gold. All right, so this these palms are also a sign of victory that's going on here. I think in some sense it's the red carpet, but it's also a sign of victory. What about the crowds? Well, of course you can't have Palm Sunday without the crowds. If Jesus had ridden on a donkey but there had been no crowds, well, that would not have been very interesting if... Uh, uh, if, if, you know, a couple of people had palms, that probably wouldn't have been interesting. But what's central to the imagery of the, of Palm Sunday is just multitudes of people in the streets of Jerusalem celebrating Jesus. He's riding on a borrowed donkey. They're waving palms. They're putting out the red carpet for this man. Mark, in his account, has the crowds both in front of the donkey and behind the donkey, like preparing the way and then also trailing behind. Matthew has crowds. Luke has crowds of disciples. Keep in mind that when we talk about the disciples of Jesus, we're not just talking about the 12. There probably were about a 100 core disciples, which were, by the way, both men and women who traveled in a pack with Jesus we see them on the day of Pentecost. Those are the, those are the remnants who are gathered in the upper room. So th- there were disciples in addition to the twelve. Uh, John, however, is the one who explains for us what these crowds were all about. Why is it that all of a sudden Jesus has this crowd uh, acclaiming him as he goes into Jerusalem? This is not the first time that Jesus has been to Jerusalem. This is not the first time that Jesus has walked into a town. Why is it that this time there is this kind of spontaneous celebration that bursts forth? John 12 verses 17 and 18 give us the clue. The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. The raising of Lazarus was the week before. Okay, That's at Bethany, not just two miles away from from Jerusalem. It's where Jesus is coming from. 
Jesus has performed a lot of miracles. He's known as a miracle worker. But then he does this very strange thing where he raises a man who's dead. And I don't mean a man who passed out. I don't mean a man whose heart stopped and needed a jolt of electricity to come back. I'm talking about a man who was dead in the grave, stinking dead. Okay, like really dead. And Jesus calls him out of the grave. Well, people go crazy. Look, if there's a man in your midst who has the ability to raise dead people, everything changes. The whole, everything changes. Think about how much of your life is about keeping alive. Think about how much of life, how much of the energy of the state is contingent upon having instruments that can end people's lives. All of the militaries in the world exist to end human life. What happens when you have someone who steps into your midst who can raise the dead? All of a sudden, all of those armies don't mean a thing anymore, do they? They don't mean a thing because you can be raised from the dead. All of a sudden, all of this concern about protecting your life doesn't mean a thing anymore because now you're attached to someone who can raise the dead. It changes what's going on here and the crowd knows this and it is this concern, uh, this interest in Jesus that's been caused by the resurrection of Lazarus that causes this crowd. The Palm Sunday crowd is about Lazarus. And John also points out to us when he's telling the Lazarus story that there is a plot to kill not only Jesus, already the plot to kill Jesus had started at that time, but now there was a plot to kill Lazarus. Okay? Chief priests want to kill Lazarus too. You can't have somebody coming back from the dead. I have no power over someone if they can pop back to life. The threat of execution doesn't mean anything to someone who can pop back to life. Alright? It rips the power away from people who exercise power by killing people. This is what the resurrection does. Alright, it's a different kind of power. It's a power of life, not the power of death. The power of the state is always a power of death. It's, a, it's the ability to punish and to kill. And all of a sudden, Jesus explodes this. People go crazy. Crowds are drawn to Jesus. So the crowds are about the Lazarus thing. What about Hosanna? Okay, I don't, John, are any of our songs have Hosanna in them? Come to the second service. There'll be four hymns, and every one of them, I promise you, will have a Hosanna in it. You just, just that just, Palm Sunday is, 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 is Hosanna, right? So this is the Palm Sunday word, but, but what does it mean? What's the translation of this word? The way we use it is as a kind of exclamation. We use it sort of like hallelujah. Have you thought about what's the difference between hallelujah and Hosanna? Yeah, think about it. Okay, so the the word Hosanna is a Greek word and shows up in the Greek text, but it's a borrowed word and they're borrowing it from a Hebrew word, uh, the meaning of which is a little fuzzy, uh, but the root of the word is to save, the, the verb to save. 
Alright, so maybe Hosanna means save us. Maybe it means help. Maybe it means you're the Savior. Okay, so it's something connected with saving, with, with the ability of this person to save. There was a recognition by the people in the crowd that Jesus had the power to save. Okay. So what does the passage teach us? So, as I said, this is history. But it's not just history. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. So how does this teach us? For reproof, reproof means to be um, called out on what you're doing wrong. How does that, how does it do that? For correction, same thing, and for training in righteousness. How does this passage train us in righteousness? There are a million things that could have been included in the pages of scripture. God decided that not everything is going to be in the Bible. Okay? And so when something shows up in scripture, you, you have to ask yourself, well, so why is this here? What, what am I supposed to learn from this? So let me remind you of Morrison's two rules of biblical interpretation. Rule number one, if the Bible says don't, it's because some of us do. And if it says do, it's because some of us don't. Okay? So when the Bible tells you to honor your father and mother, it's because some of you are not honoring your father and mother. If the Bible says don't steal, it's saying that because some of you are stealing. Alright? So that, that's rule number one. Rule number two is, we read the Bible to learn what we should do, not what our neighbor should do. Let me say that again. We read the Bible to learn what we should do, not what our neighbor should do. All too often we read scripture and use it as a weapon against our neighbors. Oh, they're not living according to scripture. Oh, the Bible condemns what they're doing. Okay? When we as Christians read the Bible, it's for us. Okay? We use it as a light to our feet. Let the word of God instruct you. God will take care of your neighbor. Don't, don't you worry about them. You're not, on the day of judgment, God's not going to call you to give testimony about your neighbor. He's going to ask you about your life. Okay? So when we read scripture, we read it to learn what we should do, not what our neighbor should do. And I mention this in particular in this passage because this passage is one that's very easy to interpret in terms of what other people are doing. And I don't want you to do that this morning, okay? I want you to think about how does this apply to you, not how does it apply to that guy. Okay. So what's going on here in this story? The crowd goes from Hosanna to crucify him in a week. And why? Well, the simple answer is, is because they thought Jesus was about politics. They thought Jesus was a political leader. They thought that the salvation that Jesus was bringing was a political 
salvation. And they sang praises to him as long as they thought that he was going to accomplish their political goals. And as soon as they discovered that he wasn't, that that wasn't his desire or intention, they cursed him and they called for his death. Now let's talk about the politics of the time. Obviously they're living in the Roman Empire. Palestine is a, is a subjugated uh, community uh, within a larger empire. Uh, the Jewish leaders uh, in Palestine, I mean there is a Jewish king uh, in Palestine. He is subject to the Roman emperor. But the Jewish leadership is corrupt. They're complicit with Rome. They're in bed, you might say, with these Gentiles and these pagans. That's going on there. There's dissatisfaction. There's a desire in, uh, in, in Israel to regain their independence. They long for the day when they have a Jewish king on the throne and, and, and they're not subject to a foreign power and they have control of their own borders when they control what's going to go on in the temple. There is a group within the... A community at that time called Zealots. These were political mm, extremists, you might call them. Maybe they were terrorists. These were people who were calling for the overthrow of the Roman rule. Okay, in 70 A.D., they will actually there will be a revolt in Jerusalem against Rome, and it will come to a very very bad end. One of the standard interpretations of Judas Iscariot and I say it's standard but it's not the only interpretation but one of the standard interpretations of Judas Iscariot is that he was a zealot that his desire was the political liberation of his country from this foreign oppressive power and he saw Jesus as as the promised Messiah who was going to liberate them okay and the argument goes that Judas betrays Jesus in the end for one of two reasons. Reason number one would be that he was disappointed that Jesus wasn't willing to take control of political power in Jerusalem when he had the moment. Okay, there was this moment, this brief shining moment when he, when he could have seized power. And Jesus says that that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm here for. You remember when Jesus goes before Pilate, what he says to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If the church is building something that's of this world, it's not building the kingdom of God. It's not building the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus says it. My kingdom is not of this world. Some people were disappointed in this because they thought that, oh, he was going to be the one who was going to build their kingdom. So one theory about Judas is, is that he was upset with Jesus and wanted him dead because of that. Another theory about Judas is, is that, that, uh, Judas believed that Jesus was the one who's going to precipitate the revolution and that if he got forced into this situation of confronting the political forces of the time in this uh, trial that would lead to his crucifixion, that he would call down the angel armies and set this right. Okay? couple theories out there. Zealots. The Messiah, in Old Testament prophecy is clearly a political liberator. 
I had to have a conversation with Steve Joss about this in the week to get my head straight about some of these issues. And he affirmed to me that the Messiah is for sure a political liberator of the state of Israel. That is, and so the expectation of these people that Messiah, if they saw Jesus as Messiah, that he was going to bring this political liberation, that that was, that that was not inappropriate. It wasn't crazy for them to, to, to think that. As it turns out, the political liberation and the promises of political, uh, uh, of the return to, uh, the, uh, the, the kingship of David in Israel is a, is a prophecy that's been delayed into the future to the second coming of Christ. But the question that we have to ask us is, in Jesus' first coming, from what does he save us? We shout in the streets, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're the Savior. Come save us. What are you saving us from? Are you saving us from Rome? Well, Rome is a bad thing. Okay, Rome is pagan. Rome is, is an evil political power. And yet you see Jesus saying, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. You see Jesus saying, My kingdom is not of this world. As it turns out, what Jesus wants to save us from is something bigger than the political apparatus that we may be living under. He wants to save us from eternal damnation. Now there have been some really bad systems of government in this world subsequent to the Roman Empire. I don't know how bad Rome was. It was so long ago, it's hard to judge. But in the lifetime of... Some people who are alive today, there was the National Socialist regime in Germany in the 30s and the 40s. Millions of their own citizens uh, executed uh, by the state. Then there was the International Socialist regimes in the Soviet Union and, and its subject states. And, and in China, tens of millions of people murdered by the state, horrible, evil regimes. Lord Jesus, why don't you liberate us from these things? Some of those people who died under those regimes died and immediately went to eternal damnation. And if they could turn back to go back to the regime, they would have gone back. Because living under Hitler and living under Mao or living under Stalin was a lot sweeter than spending eternity in hell. And others were executed by those people and were immediately translated into the presence of Almighty God. And everything that had happened in the past. Thank you. Thank you for the ticket out of there. There are bigger issues than what's going on with the state. And if we make the state our chief issue, then obviously we're involved in idolatry. We're involved in worshiping something that's just passing away. It's here now. It's not going to be here later. It's just a human creation. It will be here for a while. The problem with using Jesus as a means to your political end is that Jesus is not a means to any end. He's an end in himself. We do not worship Jesus because he makes us powerful or wealthy or free because he heals us. We worship Jesus because he 
is worthy. Because he's the creator of the universe. Because whatever he says goes. Because we must worship him. That's what we were made to do. We need to be really careful in our lives that we don't use Jesus to serve us. He is our Savior. Yes. He's not our servant. He's our King. Okay. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you and we just pray that, oh, we wouldn't be fickle like that crowd. But Lord, I pray that uh, the words of Scripture would find uh, their place in our hearts. I pray that uh, in this holy week that we might be, mm, I don't know, that we might be uh, meditating on what it is that you've accomplished for us and that we might be singing your praises. Lord, may we bring all things in our lives subject to you. Lord, may we not use you. Lord Jesus, receive our worship this day. Amen. Oh, thank you.